0: Good evening, Grant. Uh, just great to be with you tonight. Uh, I think it's been a couple of years since I preached before here, but it's always been an enjoyment to be able to be with y'all and to meet uh, the, the members here. And appreciate uh, the songs that were led and the thoughts that were contained therein. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. We'll read a few verses uh, to get us started tonight. Verse 1 Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I saw also received how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some are fallen asleep. And after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time, For I am the least of the apostles that I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. One of the foundational messages of the gospel in early apostolic preaching was the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, You can see that in a number of uh, the sermons that were delivered in the book of Acts. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, One of the primary messages of Peter was, was Jesus had been put to death by some in the crowd and that he was buried and that he rose the third day. Notice in verse 29, Acts chapter two, verse 29, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath said forth this, which ye now see and hear. Again, in chapter 3, before the crowd that gathered there after Peter and John had healed the lame man at the gate, beautiful, it drew a crowd, and Peter was able to speak and to preach before this crowd. And if you look in verse 13 of chapter 3, he said, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. Again, like I said, there's other places in uh, the book of Acts where the resurrection of Jesus Christ is is a cornerstone part of the message of the gospel. But I want to tell you that it is one of the most certified events in history that Jesus was raised from the dead. As a matter of fact, Paul—excuse me, Peter could preach with absolute confidence before this crowd that it was indeed Jesus who had came forth from the tomb, and they very well knew it. The crowd couldn't deny it. Matter of fact, it was a well known event that took place on that day in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared uh, to Mary, and then Mary went and told Peter and John. Peter and John ran to the tomb. Uh, John outran him. John stooped down and looked into it, but Peter got there second and he went into the tomb. And the Bible said that when they went in there, they saw the cloths, the burial cloths of Jesus, and the position in which they were laying. And when they saw it, they could not deny that Jesus indeed had been raised. He hadn't been stolen. He hadn't been taken by any enemies or by the disciples themselves, but he was raised and he came out of the tomb. Now, I want to tell you that the grave of Jesus, the sepulchre of Jesus, the stone that was set before it, that covered the door up, was not rolled back to let Jesus out, but to let witnesses in. And here were Peter and uh, John. They went into the tomb. They witnessed the empty tomb. They witnessed the position of the clothes that sat therein, and they came out believing. They knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. As a matter of fact, Jesus on that very day walked with some men, in Luke chapter 24, who were walking on the road to Emmaus. And he joined them. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't recognize him. But they were talking about the events of that day. They were talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. And notice the conversation here. And uh, which uh, they began talking, and Jesus himself, verse 15, drew near and went with them, and their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as you walk, and are sad? We might say this. I'm reading from the Old King James Version, but they were basically Jesus said, What are you talking about? What is this that you are discussing? And notice what they said right in verse 18. Now this is very telling. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? And hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? In other words, are you the only one that has not heard what has happened today? All of Jerusalem knew about it. It was something that practically everybody had heard about and were talking about. Now keep in mind, this was the very weekend of the Passover. And there were million uh, above a million people in Jerusalem. This occurred at a time where there was an old, just a huge multitude of people in Jerusalem, and they heard about this, and these men were surprised. You mean you haven't heard? Everybody else has. Well, just like, G, uh, like Paul told uh, King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he said that these things, referring to the, the resurrection of Christ, these things were not done in a corner. In other words, the, the resurrection of Christ was not an obscure event. It was something that everybody knew. That's why Peter, on the day of Pentecost, could preach and say, You, with wicked hands, have slain the Son of God. And they were convicted. And they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They knew the truth. They knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so did many others. Again, the crowd that assembled there, the message of the resurrection. In chapter 3 of Acts, the Sadducees were angered at that message of the resurrection. They, they denied the resurrection and they especially didn't want the very idea that Jesus had been raised from the dead to be publicized. But if you look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to tell you that there are three reasons given here as to why, it makes it very clear that there is a certified reason to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. It it was a historical fact. It's just as certain as if we know about George Washington crossing the Delaware to fight at Trenton, or the the facts of, of any historical event that takes place that we know of in history. The resurrection of Christ is that certain? It is that certain. First of all, I want to note that the resurrection of Christ is confirmed in Scripture. Look there again, he talks about uh, I have declared unto you the gospel. I'm reading for 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now notice the very first witness, the very first piece of evidence that he suggests here is that it is confirmed by the Scriptures. The scriptures foretold the resurrection of Christ. You can read, obviously, Isaiah 53 is one. We don't even have to turn over there. We know it so well, but it talks about Jesus uh, taking on our stripes, bearing our iniquities, uh, his uh, vicarious suffering for us. You can turn to Psalm chapter 22, and it's as if David was sitting there at the very foot of the cross witnessing what was happening to Jesus. He wrote with such explicit detail. And then, of course, if you think about the resurrection, Psalm 16 is one that's quoted quite often, where it talks about in Psalm 16. He says, I bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now this is written from the perspective of Jesus himself, that his soul would not be left in hell, that he would be seated at the right hand of God. And that was a part of the resurrection, the ascension, and the coronation of Jesus as seating on the throne of David at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling over his kingdom, the church. All of that came to pass, and this is a direct quote that's used by uh, Paul, uh, Peter and Paul, both in the book of, of Acts. Now, uh, I want you to note here what he says. He says that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried. And notice that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, if you were to scan the Scriptures, there's no prophecy that really mentions Jesus being raised on the third day. But if you understand the idea of types, it was prophesied. And here's what Jesus said if you look over in Matthew chapter 12 concerning uh, being raised the third day. And he talks about the Old Testament's reference to this great event, where he says in Matthew 12, in verse 39, uh, he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign be given to it but the sign of the pro- prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus makes reference to the great narrative of what happened to Jonah being swallowed after having run from from God, uh, trying to avoid his responsibility of preaching. He's swallowed, he stays in the uh, belly of the fish for three days, And then he's regurgitated. And this is a sign, it is a type of Christ who was uh, spent three days in the heart of the earth and he was raised the third day. Now, again, this is, I think, what he's making reference to here. This great Old Testament story was a type of the resurrection of Christ and that he would come forth on the third day. Now, obviously, Scripture... And prophecy are amazing because there are 335 prophecies that are given in the Old Testament about Jesus, and every one of them came to pass. Now, there's a man by the name of Peter Singer. He was a uh, mathematician, and he did uh, some, uh, I guess, some figuring on the probabilities of, of only eight of these 335 prophecies coming to pass. And he came out with just an astronomical number as to the odds of that happening just by chance. And I, I could have wrote down the number, it was uh, so large I didn't know what it was. But he gave an illustration to tell what it would be like. He said if you were to take the state of Texas And you were to fill it up with half dollars up to your knees. all across the state, half dollars just piled up to your knees. And you put one dime in there. And you try, and you tell someone, well, go find that one dime. What's the odds of finding that one dime? Not much, is it? Well, that's the same odds if only eight of the prophecies of Jesus came true. Now let me tell you something, the scriptures confirm it. The scriptures confirm that Jesus would be raised from the dead. And he gives this as the number one evidence here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he died according to the scriptures, he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. But not only is it confirmed by the scriptures, it is is also certified by saints. Look there in verse 5. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me. This is Paul writing. Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. Now, these were credible men. Credible people. Not to mention others. There were women who saw him. But it's obvious that these men, who were very reliable, men who were credible, men who had no motive to lie about this, because of the cost it was going to be. Uh, they were going to have to be exacted from them. That is, they were going to be persecuted, perhaps even put to death because of their testimony of Jesus Christ, of his resurrection, why would a person be willing to subject himself to jail, to beating, to torture, to death for a lie? These men were credible men. Now, it is something that God expects of us to believe the testimony of these good men, these holy men, these men who were inspired of the Holy Spirit. If you look over in the book of John, we read this uh, a moment ago, the young man did, uh, from John chapter 20. This is an occasion on the very night that Jesus was raised from the dead. And it says in verse, uh, let's look down in, in verse 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith to them, Peace be unto you. And when they said, when he had said so, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them, Again, peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they shall be remitted unto them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But notice verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which, which means twin, he was a perhaps had a twin brother. Uh, He was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, they went to him and said, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, except I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. In other words, he had to have what we call empirical evidence. Now, that's a big, fanciful word, but all that means is that you have to have evidence you can see or touch. In other words, he wasn't going to believe the testimony of any person. He had to be able to see it and to touch it before he would believe. So the Bible says in verse 26, after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And he saith to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and touch and behold my hands, and reach hither my, thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now Jesus provided that empirical evidence that he was looking for. He was able to see him. He was able to touch him. And therefore, that created faith in Thomas. He, he then knew that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. But I want you to note here in verse 20, 29 what Jesus says. Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Now, that's you and I. That's, that's who he's talking about, people like you and I. We hadn't seen Jesus and been able to touch him and touch his, his nail prints and, and the scar in his side. We, we can't do that. We haven't been able to visually see him, but we are still expected to believe, why? Because of the testimony of eyewitnesses. Now, in the court of law, an eyewitness has tremendous weight. And if you get two eyewitnesses, it's really very conclusive but the testimony of an eyewitness is considered the very best form of evidence and that's what we have with jesus there were several that saw him above 500 at one time the bible says he was seen we don't need to be faithless but believing so first of all we've noticed here that the resurrection of christ is confirmed in the scriptures secondly it is certified by the saints But thirdly, we see another piece of evidence, and that is the conversion of sinners. Look here in this passage again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and there's three individuals in specific that are mentioned that uh, had a conversion upon the resurrection of Christ. The first one he mentions there that uh, Jesus appeared to was Cephas or what we call, of course, we call him Peter. Peter was obviously one of the early disciples, and he was one of the inner three of the disciples. He was, I think, probably had a, some degree of leadership among the disciples. He wasn't above any of them. He wasn't like a pope, but he did have a, a great deal of importance among the apostles. And we know a lot about Peter's personality. He was he was very... Uh, quick uh, to make confessions and very quick to speak his mind and many times would say things that he didn't fully think out. Well, in the Bible, the Bible talks about in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus told him that this very night you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. As a matter of fact, one place says, the rooster will crow, will crow twice, and you will have denied me thrice or three times. And Peter said, oh, not me, Lord. Now, these others over here, then you know, you kind of see him point toward the other disciples. He said, they may do it. They may be offended at you, but, Lord, I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to die for your name, for you. And yet, less than 24 hours later, Peter denies the Lord, two times before maidens, young girls. And there was a time where one of them said, hey, you were with him, your your speech betrays you. And when she said that, he began to curse and to swear. He reached back into that vernacular of his being a fisherman, began to curse and to swear to try to prove he didn't know Jesus. But something happened to Peter. Because Peter on that occasion was a coward. And the Bible says when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned and looked upon him and Peter wept bitterly. He he sobbed uncontrollably because he knew that the Lord knew. After having made this great boast about his faithfulness and his willingness to suffer, within 24 hours he had already fulfilled what Jesus said. And he went out and wept bitterly. And so here's a man that was a coward. He denied the Lord three times. And yet we don't stop and think about Peter as being a coward. Certainly that's a part of his history. But we think about Peter as the one who stood up and boldly proclaimed the word in Acts chapter 2, and literally pointed at the crowd and said, you have put the Son of God to death. And again in chapter 3, we read a moment ago, he said the very same thing. Now that took a lot of courage and boldness. We think of Peter as the one who in Acts chapter 5 counted it great. He counted it Tremendous or, or good, he was glad to suffer for the name of Christ, that he was worthy to suffer for his name. And after having been released from prison, he went right back out to the temple and began preaching again. Now what happened? How is it that Peter went from being a coward that would not admit and confess Jesus Christ and being a follower to suddenly being one that has great Boldness and courage. There's only one answer to that. He saw the resurrected Christ. And that changed him. That changed him from being one that was afraid to one that was very much full of courage. Now secondly, there's another that's mentioned here and it's found in verse 7. And that is, he was seen of James. James. Then all the apostles. Now, this was not James, John's brother. This was not James, who was one of the 12. This is a reference here to another James. Jesus had, I think it was five brothers. Their names are all listed in Matthew 13, verse 55. Two of them you're familiar with. James, who was the author of the book of James, and Jude, who is the author of the book of Jude, they were, these were the brothers of Jesus. Or we we might call them the half-brothers. They didn't have the same father. But we do know something about James. James the apostle was put to death in Acts chapter 12. Peter was in prison. Peter escaped through the providential power of God. He escaped, went to the house of Mary. Of course, remember there, he had trouble getting in. The, the uh, maid didn't believe it was him, went running back in. Even the people didn't anticipate. They were praying for him, but they were surprised when he showed up the door. Then Peter came in, told them what all happened, and he told them, go and tell James and the brethren. Now, it wasn't James the apostle. It was James the Lord's brother. In Acts chapter 15, there was a meeting of the apostles and the elders at the Church of Jerusalem. They came together to discuss circumcision and the keeping of the law. Now, they didn't come together to make law. They came together to find out what God's will was was on the matter. And Peter got up and made some comments about what had happened at the house of Cornelius. Paul also talked about some of the great things that God had done on his missionary journeys. And then James stood up and concluded the meeting by quoting from the book of Amos, Amos chapter 9, where it talks about God taking the Gentiles and closing up the breaches or the holes in the tabernacle of Jacob. He took that Old Testament passage about the church and how that it was pictured there as being in ruins, but God would take the Gentiles and repair it with it. It's it's a metaphor of how God would use both Jews and Gentiles to build his church with. And James made that quote, and he concluded the meeting by saying, look, we shouldn't bind the law or circumcision on the Gentiles, but just tell them, you know, don't, Sacrifice to idols, don't commit fornication, uh, don't eat anything, strangle with blood, and so forth. He didn't bind the old law. Uh, neither, uh, none of these men did because God's will was that the old law should not be bound on anyone because, as Peter said, it was a yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear. But my point is this. James was a, a very prominent man in the church of Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9 mentions him as being one of the pillars of the church of Jerusalem. And Paul also made mention in Galatians chapter 1 that he was considered an apostle. Not, not a one of the 12, but in a secondary sense, kind of like Barnabas, who was one who was sent. James is referred to. James, the Lord's brother, is referred to as an apostle in the secondary sense. But but the thing about James is he was not always a believer. If you look in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, it tells us that none of the brothers of Jesus believed in him. As a matter of fact, they mocked him, Uh, they ridiculed him. James was not a believer. But when you look in Acts chapter 1, when all of the believers were gathered together in the upper room, the apostles and others, among that group was Mary and the brothers of Jesus. Now somewhere between John the 7th chapter and Acts chapter 1, the brothers of Jesus became believers. Why is that? How did James go from being an unbeliever to being a prominent, probably an elder at the church of of Jerusalem? He saw the resurrected Christ. He saw Jesus resurrected, and that, that basically demanded within him that he believed. There was evidence that he had to believe, and it changed his life. And then thirdly, notice here Paul mentions Last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Paul says, I'm another that saw him. Now, we all know Paul's past. He was a, a Jew's Jew. He was a Pharisee. He apparently, very possibly could have been a rabbi. Uh, he had a prominence within the Jewish religion. He was one that held the coat of the men who... Stoned Stephen. Uh, He went out seeking to persecute the church, to imprison men, to uh, uh, take them and perhaps even have them killed or beaten. And he went even into foreign cities trying to find Christians to persecute. He absolutely hated Christianity. His persecution is what led many to be scattered abroad preaching the gospel in various places. But in Acts chapter 9, when he was on the road to Damascus, God appeared, uh, excuse me, Jesus appeared to him there as a bright, shining light. Uh, He spoke to him, and he says, Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And when he found out from that great vision there at the road to Damascus, The Bible said that he went into the city and fasted three days. Now, I'll tell you why Paul fasted three days is because even though he was a sincere man and he was doing what he really truly thought to be the will of God, to persecuting the church, he now realizes, hey, what I've been doing is wrong. I've been doing things contrary to the will of God. I've actually been harming the people of God. And he lost his appetite. For three days, he, ate, he did eat anything. He stayed in prayer. And the Bible says that when Ananias came, he was baptized. And the Bible said straightway he began preaching Christ. Now, what could cause a man to go from being the biggest hater, the biggest persecutor of the church to becoming one of the greatest preachers of the gospel. C.S. Lewis, uh, if you've ever read any of his works, he uh, makes mention of the conversion of Paul as the very thing that convinced him that the resurrection of Christ was true. He says, how could you explain it? There is no explaining it. Paul became a believer because he saw Jesus raised from the dead. All three of these men did, Peter and James and Paul. They all became believers after having seen him raised from the dead. You have here the conversion of these men who were sinners. I know Peter wasn't what we call a habitual sinner, but he was in sin after he denied the Lord. But nevertheless, he was restored. And God was able to use these these men mightily in his service. Now, my question to you tonight is, has the risen Savior made a difference in your life? Has your life changed because Jesus came forth from the tomb? Let me tell you something. This is evidence that demands a verdict. If you're here tonight as one who's not a Christian, consider these things. Consider the fact that the Word of God is true historical fact. Jesus came forth from the tomb. And he did so as a promise that one day all of us will be raised, hopefully, to eternal life. Are you subject to the invitation? Do you need to be baptized? We bid you to come while we stand and while we sing.